think I might have a new favorite song. That was awesome. That was good. Thank you, guys. Well, hey, if, you're, if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to Genesis 32. Genesis 32. So we are continuing our series called A Family for the World. And so what we've been looking at uh, in Genesis, so we started in Genesis 12. We're tracking all the way through the rest of the end of the book. And what we've been looking at is the story of a family that God chose out of this world to be his own, to grow, to expand across the earth, and be a clear representation of who he is to the rest of humanity. And so God called a man named Abraham. And he promised Abraham that he would do just that that he would fulfill this great plan through Abraham and his descendants, that they would become the representation of God himself and show the rest of the world what his heart truly looks like. And so that continued with Abraham's son, Isaac, and then went on and continued with his son, Jacob. And so the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the story of Jacob. And so we're going to continue that today. What a fascinating life. We're going to continue in Genesis 32 and 33. But before we dive into that, I want us to pray. And I want us to ask the Lord that he would enlighten us to the truth of his word. That it would truly penetrate our hearts and change us today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that we get to be here this morning. Open up your word that you have revealed to us. Lord, you are a God who wants to be known. And so you have given us words on pages that are divinely inspired from you, revealing yourself to us. We are not left without knowledge of who you are. Your creation speaks, but your word speaks clearer and even truer. So would you open up our hearts as we open up your word and plant your word in our hearts so that we may become the family, the family of God for this world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. What we now know today as World War I was not, of course, always called that. The English author... H.G. Wells labeled that first great war as the war to end all wars. And that was the popular phrase used at the time. There was an optimistic belief that that great worldwide war would actually end up bringing peace to the world forever. At least Wells believed that if the certain countries that were inflicting evil on others, if they could be defeated, the world would have no reason to ever fight again. Well, then World War II happened, and as we have seen, unfortunately, since then, many other great wars have happened all around the world over the decades. We see now how foolish an idea it was, a utopian idea of sorts, 
that this one conflict, this one fight, would be the fight to end all other fights. You know, we've been looking at the story of Jacob. Jacob's life was a continual, ongoing fight. His life was full of conflict with who? Other people, really, right? I mean, all the relationships in his life were filled with turmoil, manipulation, deceit. Jacob was a fighter, but not in the good sense of the word. Jacob fought with others. His whole life was defined by conflict in his relationships. I mean, literally, he came out of the womb with his hand grasping the heel of his twin brother. I mean, that's pretty bad, right? That's, that's a bad sign. He's trying to literally pull ahead. He wants to be first. And then as he grew up, he didn't have the fatherly love and affection from his dad that we all need, not all of us necessarily get. Jacob didn't get that from his dad, Isaac. Isaac loved his brother Esau more. You know that had to hurt Jacob. So to get ahead, what did he do? He outsmarted his brother. He took his brother's firstborn status. He, he took his birthright, which in the ancient world meant everything. Then he tricked his father and stole the firstborn blessing that comes along from the father with the status. He steals these things through deception. So Esau, his brother, was so angry about this, he wanted to kill Jacob. Jacob had stolen everything from him, essentially. Power, money, decision-making capabilities in the family. The leadership of the family would rest on the firstborn. Jacob took that. Esau wants to kill him then. So Jacob does what? We saw last week, he flees for his life and he goes to live with his uncle in a foreign land, his uncle Laban. But things don't get any better there for Jacob. He fought against his uncle. He fought for the right to marry the woman he truly loved. Then his uncle's sons, so Jacob's cousins, they got mad at him for, for becoming really wealthy at their expense. He was getting lots of wealth from their dad. And they're thinking, hey, he's doing it again. He's stealing an inheritance from us. So his uncle got mad at him for leaving town. Jacob leaves town. His uncle gets mad at him because he takes his daughters and his grandchildren and he goes unannounced. So all that happens since last week, the sermon I preached, all that happens until this point we're picking up in Genesis 32 today. But do you see what I mean? Jacob has been fighting with others his whole life. He has been manipulative. He has been deceitful. He has been selfish. He is a sly fox, right? He's always scheming. He's always trying to make a deal to get what he wants, to get ahead. But perhaps Jacob's greatest fight is not in these human relationships as much as it is in his relationship with God. And if he ever wants to end all of this, if he ever wants to end this wrestling match with these relationships in his life, he must first end his fight with the Lord himself. 
It's been 20 years. It's been 20 years since Jacob has even spoken to or seen his brother Esau. But over these 20 years, obviously a lot has changed, right? Jacob and Esau are both married now. And we don't have time to get into the story, but it'd be a fascinating one for you to go home and read. But Jacob has two wives. He has two wives named Rachel and Leah. He has lots of kids. He's very wealthy. And you could read more about that part of the story in chapters 29 to 31. But now in 32, what is he doing? He's traveling back to his homeland with his family. The place that he had to flee 20 years earlier from his brother who wanted to kill him, Jacob's coming back. What's going to happen? Genesis 32, let's start in verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So we see here, God is present. God is present with Jacob. He's guiding him with these angels. He's protecting him. This is a sign of God's provision once again in Jacob's life, even though Jacob doesn't deserve it. God's hand is on him because the descending line of that promise God made to Abraham is now through Jacob. Verse 3, and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So this is interesting, right? Jacob wants to see his brother, but he doesn't know what that's going to look like. He doesn't know if Esau is still angry. I mean, it's been 20 years. Has the anger built? Right? Has it just been inflating and, and getting worse inside of Esau's heart? Or has maybe Esau gotten over this? Jacob has no idea. He hasn't spoken to his brother in 20 years. So notice the language Jacob uses. He calls Esau Lord. And that's interesting for a guy who wanted to take away Esau's status and be above Esau. He calls Esau Lord and he says that he is his servant. Now, that's either a sign of true humility or, or he's just scared. He's possibly afraid, and he's trying to get on Esau's good side so that Esau will not kill him and his family. But how will Esau respond? Look at verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. It's not a good sign. Verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So Esau has 400 men. He's coming towards Jacob so Jacob panics with great fear, as any of us would, and he immediately strategizes how to at least save half of his family 
and the caravan that is with them if Esau attacks. Verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So, so Jacob's great fear prompts him to cry out to his God. He's crying out to the Lord for deliverance. He pleads with God to somehow, please save me and my wives and my kids, save my family, so that your promise, God, can continue so that you can build this great nation out of this family to represent you in this world. Now maybe Jacob's not thinking so much about that grand theological picture that I just said, but what he is concerned about is simply God saving him out of this. Verse 13. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. So if anybody needs anything for Christmas, these are good ideas, right? <clears throat> 30 milking camels. <laughs> these he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me, and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So here goes Jacob scheming again, right? And remember, he is a very wealthy man at this point in his life. So he has lots of valuable livestock. So in our modern minds, this is really hard for us to imagine, like, what's with all the animals, right? It sounds like the 12 days of Christmas here. I'm just going to send a few gifts at a time to, you know, really soften the blow here, right? So... <laughs> He's, he's sending all these animals. It sounds confusing to our modern mind, but in the ancient world, having this, these livestock right, was so pivotal. It was a sign of great wealth, and it was a great gift for him to give his brother. But this does show Jacob wants to make things right. But he's going about it in a way 
that showcases his wealth. And again, is this kind of manipulative? Yeah, maybe. Verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. So Jacob gets his family to safety across the river. But now he is left alone the night before he will meet his brother for the first time in 20 years. Or is he? Verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. What? Who is this? Someone, someone's found Jacob alone, right? I mean, maybe is this one of, is this one of Esau's men, one of his 400 men who are with him, one of his soldiers? Maybe one of them was sent to spy. Maybe one of them found Jacob on the other side of the river, left alone, and is there to kill him. Whoever this is that is fighting with Jacob physically, literally, through the night, fighting, wrestling, whoever this is, Jacob and him fight until the sun comes up. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. All right, now hang on a second. This man has some serious strength, right? I mean, he dislocates Jacob's hip. That's quite the fight going on here. And you can only imagine the excruciating pain from your hip being dislocated. So this is a serious fight, but Jacob has a realization that we are clued into here in verse 26. Jacob realizes that this is no ordinary man. There is a supernatural strength in this man he is wrestling. Jacob realizes that and asks the man to bless him. You see... This is astonishing. But this man that Jacob is wrestling is God himself. Verse 27. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel limping because of his hip. Jacob has had an extraordinary encounter with God himself. You can sense something very special just happened in Jacob's life. 
Because God changed his name. And whenever that happens in the scriptures, it is something remarkably important. Because it is signifying a turn in someone's life. It is signifying that you are now a different purpose, or person with a different purpose. God changes his name. And Jacob exclaims and realizes that he has been delivered after meeting God face to face. So Jacob has now faced God, but now he must face Esau. Look at chapter 33. Let's keep going. Genesis 33, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph, last of all. See, Jacob has no idea what to expect still, right? Will Esau kill him and his family? He divides them up, and then Jacob goes in front of them all. Verse 3, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Just try to picture this in your, in your mind. A deserted area of sorts, 400 men on the horizon, Esau walking in front, Jacob, the estranged brother for 20 years, all of his family and caravan behind him. Jacob limping, limping in pain because of the fight he encountered the night before, bowing over, bowing on the ground in front of his brother Esau, whose status he stole. Now he's bowing to him seven times as he limps along toward his brother. You can, you can almost imagine just time standing still in this moment as 20 years of pain and fear and regret is flooding Jacob's mind. 20 years of wondering if he would ever see his brother again and if they would ever forgive one another. So with his new family behind him and his long-lost brother in front of him, look at verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And so God allows these two brothers to be reconciled. And one of the most beautiful scenes in the entire Bible, obviously something has happened in Esau's heart too, because he runs into Jacob's arms and they just weep together as 20 years worth of sorrow flows through their tears. And the question we're left wondering is how is that possible? How is that moment? How is that possible? I want us to take a closer look at this story and try to figure out what is really going on especially in Jacob's heart. You see, bitterness, jealousy, and anger are constant themes in the relationships of Jacob's life. But, but we see 
Jacob wanting to reconcile with Esau, which is great, but what else does he need to learn before that can really happen? In other words, what does God need to teach Jacob, a man of deception, a man of selfish nature who always tries to walk his own path? You see, a real wrestling match was going on between Jacob and the Lord, but perhaps this wrestling match during the night Perhaps it symbolizes as well Jacob's life and his heart up until this point. A constant struggle with the Lord, pulling and pushing. Jacob turning one way, the Lord tugging on him another way. But in this darkness of night, as Jacob wrestles with the Lord, will he emerge fully committed to the Lord? Will he meet God and be changed. Maybe just when Jacob thought he had the upper hand in this fight, the Lord dislocates his hip as if to really get his attention through that excruciating pain or to show Jacob that, you know, Jacob, your strength and your abilities that you've been relying on this whole time your strength is not going to be what carries you forward. Maybe to show him that it's his abilities are not what matter moving forward. Maybe God is teaching a prideful Jacob who relies on his own strength and his own wealth and his own wit that it's better to limp along the path of God than to run down the road of self. But you have to notice the imagery in this story. Compared to last week, remember last week we saw Jacob in this, this dream that he had. Remember that? 20 years earlier, I say last week, but it was 20 years, right, in the, in the storyline here. 20 years earlier in the story, when Jacob had the dream from God about the staircase leading from heaven to earth. In that moment of his life, which was the lowest point, the darkest moment, what do you see? You see that night had fallen. The darkness had fallen on Jacob. He was at the lowest point of his life, running for his life. But now, 20 years later, after meeting God face to face, the scriptures here tell us that the day has broken in this season of Jacob's life. Light is now shining into the darkness of his heart. So now, after the painful encounter that God initiated in this fight, Jacob, the deceiver, becomes Israel, the one who struggles with God. It's a change. It's a turnaround from the path of self to walking with God, even if you have to limp along in your weakness. So now... The sun is rising on Jacob. The darkness is over. He's a new man with a limp. He's a new man with a limp to remind him where his strength really comes from. So Jacob, your heart, your heart is now right with the Lord. Now, now you can sincerely make things right with the others in your life. Now that, you're high, now that your heart is right vertically, you can make things right horizontally with the relationships on earth. 
without any manipulation, without any deception, without impure motives. And that brings us to the really just one main point of this story I want us to see today. Only when, only when we fully embrace the love of God for us will we be free to love others. John Lennon wrote one of the most famous songs of all time. You know it. Imagine. And in the song, in this utopian ideal in John Lennon's mind, I want to read some of the lyrics to you. He says, Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Sounds nice. Except it's impossible. In our scripture reading earlier from Matthew 22, I want to read something someone else said. We heard Jesus say, the greatest command of all to all his followers is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second greatest is that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. It's not so much a problem that John Lennon wanted the world to get along. Can't we all just get along? Don't we want that? Sure. But where he completely missed the boat is the root of the problem. That mankind is separated from our Creator because of our own rebellion in our hearts against him. And the broken relationship we have, each of us, in our sinful nature between us and the God who made us is the reason, the only reason, that we see the pain of the world. Because the conflict between us and God, if it is not resolved, it spreads among ourselves to one another. In order for us to be able to love our neighbors as ourselves, for that second commandment to happen, in order for us to love others and truly put their interests ahead of our own, we must first face God. We must first love God as He has loved us. It's only when we fully embrace the love of God, that we are then enabled to freely love others without restraints. Only when we fully embrace the love of God and strive to live according to His design for us, only when we are able to reflect the heart of God to others, to extend to them the grace that we've experienced ourselves, 
Only after wrestling with God yourself and being touched by him and transformed into a new person with a new status. It's only then, as Jacob was, that we can allow the bitterness and the jealousy and the anger in our hearts to truly melt away with the warmth of his love. Only then can we break free and love others as we have been loved by God himself. You see, many years after this, many years after this story we just read, there would be someone much stronger and much greater than Jacob who would fight a different fight in the darkness all along. As Jesus hung on the cross, Mark 15, verse 33, tells us, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. You see, Jesus, the son of Abraham, wrestled with sin and death on the cross in excruciating pain alone in the darkness. But on the third day, when morning was breaking and the sun was rising, he rose with new life. You see, Jesus won the greatest fight to truly end all fights. Jesus has fought for you already. He's defeated sin and the power it has to enslave your heart and your mind. He has fought it. He has defeated it. And here's what that means. Now you are free. You are free indeed to turn away from the idols of your heart that have ruled over you from the belief that you must have the approval of others to, uh, to feel important, that you must have great success or wealth to feel good about yourself, that you must have status in this world or else you are a failure, the gospel of Jesus Christ frees you from believing that falseness. As it freed Jacob to truly understand the love of God and then extend it to someone he once hated. We are free to cast these idols down and find everything we've ever wanted in Christ. The love and the acceptance and the success and the approval and the status you've been wanting and longing for, it's all in Christ. The inheritance that we no longer have to try to steal from anyone else. We have it in Jesus, in our eternal home in heaven. And that's what we're living for. We're not living for the things of this earth, as hard as that is to put into practice. We have to constantly remind ourselves why we are on this earth and what and who we are living for. When we love others, when we love others, as God has loved us, the gospel frees us to love them without having to use any selfish motive or any manipulation 
Because we don't need them to give us something. Do you see that? Why is there so much conflict in the world? Why was there so much conflict in Jacob's life? Why is there so much conflict in the relationships of your life? Because we deep down believe falsely that we need those people to give us something. And so we will go to whatever lengths it takes to get that from them, even if it's just approval. But when the love of God is all you ever need or want, and the eternal status that he has blessed upon you, you know what? You know what you realize? I don't have to pay. I don't have to pay people off. I don't have to pay God off. I don't have to send gifts ahead of me as Jacob did to Esau to try to win over God's favor or anyone else's because I have all the approval and love and acceptance I have ever needed or wanted in Jesus Christ, the life he lived for me, the the death he should have died that he died for me. I have all of that. I have the riches of heaven awaiting me for eternity. You can truly say that. And so then, and only then, when you believe that deep in your heart, can you look at your brother or look at your sister and say, I love you and I am sorry for the way I've treated you. And I'm sorry that I have tried to manipulate you. And I am sorry for all the times that I tried to get something from you instead of giving you the same love that I have been loved by God himself. It's powerful. The love of God is powerful because it breaks the barriers down between us and other people. It's only through this way that we can love others truly, sacrificially, as Jesus did for us. It's a glimpse, you know. When we love others as God loves us, you know what we're showing them? It's a glimpse of a better world to come. It's a glimpse of the truth and the reality that, oh, there has been a war that will one day absolutely end all wars. There has been a fight that ends all fights. When you sacrificially love your spouse, when you sacrificially love your brother or sister in Christ, or anyone in your life who you have held bitterness towards, anger towards, jealousy towards, when you let the love of God control your actions towards them, you are showing them a glimpse of the eternal future that we all are longing for. And you, you are living out the mission of God that he called Abraham to start. You are becoming a family. We are becoming a family, the body of Christ, the family of God, for the world. So when we love others, as we have been loved by God himself, we are fulfilling this mission that God gave to Abraham. How about that? So here's a question. Here's a question we all need to be honest 
with ourselves about and candidly ask ourselves, who are you fighting against? Who are you fighting against? And listen, for some of you in here, it may be God himself. Maybe your fight is with God. And what you really need to do, instead of trying to get out of the fight and run away, you feel him tugging on your heart. You feel the pain sometimes that is inflicted in your life because you, you know your sin is there, but you're not really ready to repent of it. You're not really ready to give it up. And what you need to do is just meet God face to face. You need to cry out to him for deliverance.